0: Praise God. Well, let's get into God's Word tonight. We've already prayed over it. James, the book of James, the, and we're going to go, we're still in chapter 1. I think we made it through five verses, um, and I do want to move along, but there's something I really thought we need to get into tonight. So let's just start reading down through it, and then um, we'll, we'll see where God takes us, the Spirit of God takes us. That's the wonderful thing about, about studying just a, a, a book. Um, In fact, I was in this book just for my own devotion this morning, and God began to speak to me out of this book. This Bible is its a living word. I can't tell you the hundreds of times I've preached out of James, and I don't know how many hundreds of times I've read it. And it still speaks to me, because it's a living word. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. And if you, if you, if you read your Bible in the morning, wherever you do at your devotion time, whenever you read your Bible, if you recognize this is God speaking to me, He doesn't just speak here. To me, He speaks here in my ears rarely. And when He does, I duck. (laughs) Because there's a reason why He's speaking to these ears. Usually it's by impressions in here, but He'll speak to you. He speaks to me through the Word. And he's speaking to me today some things which we'll get through eventually. So let's begin to read down through here. And of course, as we've talked about, this is a letter written by, this is a letter written by James, most likely the, the half-brother of our Lord. Um, and it was also the head of the church in Jerusalem written to Jewish believers that had been scattered, that's what it says in the beginning, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the, the twelve tri- tribes which were scattered abroad. The twelve tribes refer to the tribe of Israel, Israel and Judah. Judah was ten tribes, Israel was two tribes at the time, uh, at the time of, of Christ, and they, they, they were scattered. And so uh, under, the, under the first century, the, the Jewish believers were persecuted, and what they did is they just left Jerusalem, and they we talked about last time, they left everything. They left their clothes, their houses, their jobs, their family, their dogs, their cats, or whatever else they couldn't bring with them. So imagine what it's like to be out there in a foreign land, Without what you're used to for your security, your network of, of, you know, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have FaceTime. They didn't couldn't connect with each other except by these kinds of letters. And so what was beginning to happen is they were beginning to drift. And the, the book of Hebrews is written essentially to the same group because they were beginning to drift back into Judaism. And it's kind of a warning. And the book of Hebrews is really about the grace of God and reminding them to keep their confession in. Christ Jesus and the grace that he paid for and brought to them. But having talked about grace in the book of Hebrews, now James begins to talk about the practical side of living that out. So this is where the the book is coming from. It really helps to understand that. So what we're talking about is verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We talked a lot about that over the last couple of weeks. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. So when we're going through a trial, and that's a difficult situation in life, it can be financial, it can be physical, it can just be emotional. It's whatever is opposing you, and it's called a test or a trial for a reason. We're going to talk a little more about that tonight. It's a test or a trial. Why do you get a test at school to find out what you know, so that you know what you know, you find out where you are, and the teachers find out where you are? I don't know if I may have probably I may have shared this with you at some point, but when I went to law school, the first year of law school, there were no midterm tests. They were year-long courses, and the only exam was the final exam. Is that what you had? Um, And and you know, and that sounds great. I only have any test, but you have no idea how you're doing. And everything rests on that final exam. And you have no idea, because if you had tests in between, you would have some idea, whoa, I need to spend more time. But you've gone through this whole year, and you don't know whether you've gotten it or not until you take this final exam. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure on it. Well, so tests are to help us find out where we really are. And, and, when, and when you realize where you really are and why, the, why you've come into the test, and what what the let me go back a step. God doesn't only really tell you why the test came. What he wants you to do is learn what the test is intended to teach you. God may explain to you why, but most of the time he doesn't tell you why. And we get distracted. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And if you keep asking why, you're probably not going to hear what God has to say to you. Well, you ought to be saying, what do I need to learn? What do I need to see? What, is, what does this show me about where I am? What about you do I need to learn? Because tests are to help you learn, they don't always come from God, but God will use sometimes the messes we get ourselves into as a test and we're going to look at two of those tonight. I told you that about that last week. So but the way to handle them, handle them is to count it all joy. We talked about counting, we talked about joy when you fall into various trials, and this is why knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. so the reason you can count it all joy is that the testing of your faith. Is going to produce patience. Peter says that the proving of your faith is more precious than gold, and it's the, it, in the. And it's not just going through the test; it's when it proves or tries or develops your faith, because it's developed faith. It's more precious than gold. Gold comes and goes, but your faith will get you through anything. And so, but let patience. So what? 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 The, what? The exercising your faith. In a trial, does it does it develops patience? And we talked last week about patience in the in the New Testament. The Greek word for patience doesn't mean to just put up with something. It means a strong, steadfast, confident assurance. It means being steady and immovable no matter what comes. And a lot of times, you know, we're looking to do certain things, and all the Bible's saying is just keep standing. Ephesians six, it says, having done all to stand, run. No. Having done all to stand, panic. No. Having done all to stand, stand. Just keep standing. Because if you stand long enough, God will get you out of it. But many situations, we don't re- we react to the situation. And as a result, God's not able to do for you or in you what he wants to do. And many times, but it's one of the reasons I'm still convinced that God put me in this position, and I was not always there, is because I learned through a bunch of things I went through, to just not react. I'm not saying I never react. But it's very rare. And if I react, I don't react outwardly. I may react inwardly. So God could trust me. Because whatever happened, I'm not going to punch somebody out. I'm not going to say something just out of my flesh. Because if I say something, it can hurt a whole lot of people. And so, and, and, and therefore God will I'll entrust me or you, whatever. If you will allow him to. But I didn't get there overnight. I got there by going through a whole series of difficult situations which became trials and tests. But because I went through them and was learned to at least have the patience to go through them, God was able to develop in me what he needed to develop in me so he could put me where he wanted, trust to put me where he wanted to put me. Now what that did for me is that realized I gave me tremendous confidence because God had determined I was ready to do this. I certainly didn't think I was. I still don't think I am. But God's decided that because if he put me in that position, having passed the test, then God has determined by looking inside of me that I I have what I need to do this with him. And so my point is this. I mean, you may never be in, in ministry, but God, because you're his child, he wants to develop and mature you, but strengthen you strengthen you so what? what's coming down the road this year or next year is not going to topple you over but not only that strengthen you because he may want to put you in more difficult situations look at what the apostle Paul went through but God had to prepare him and strengthen him before he would release him into it when he was called by Jesus he told, he told Ananias he said go lay hands on him and because I want to tell him the things he got to suffer for me what a great calling I've called you to suffer for me but he had the grace and the strength to go through it. Why? Because God had developed in him through a series of t- trials and tests he went through. But he can't develop that in you if you react to the trial, if you panic, if you, you know, fall apart, if you run away from the trial. God can't develop in you what he wants to develop in you. So it takes patience to go through the trial. So that God can develop in you the character. Most of what God wants to develop in us is on the inside. It's character. Talent can be given in a matter of seconds. Talent was given in your DNA. But character has to be developed. And Ed Cole used to say, talent will take you places, but it's going to be character that keeps you there. God would rather have somebody with developed character and no talent than people somebody with all the talent in the world and no character, because that talent's dangerous. It's like a loaded gun in the hand of a five year old. And so God but my point is God's working this in our lives. So and we looked last time at first Corinthians chapter ten verse thirteen where, where it says there's no temptation that's befallen you that's not common to man, but which God has not enable you to endure so that you can go through it or throw through it so you can do it whichever way around. Anyway, so the point is God watches over it. He will not allow something in your life that's going to destroy you. He will not allow something in your life. You may allow it to destroy you but God will not allow something in your life that will destroy you. Job's a good example. God didn't do all that to Job, but Satan had to come and ask permission. He did. Now, Job had opened up the door for Satan to come in, but God put boundaries around what Satan could do. And so God protects you within range of what he knows you can go through with him. But how you respond or react to that trial determines what God can do in your life. And here's a principle that I learned years ago. God is more stubborn than I am. You hear that, honey? He's more stubborn than I am. There is someone more stubborn than I am. It's God, and I think I got my stubbornness from Him. I don't want to get off on that. I've forgotten what my point was. (laughs) Oh, yes. God's, let's put it this way. God's single-minded. I don't know, because I don't have contact with public school system anymore. I know what our system's like. But but the last time I was aware of anything, if, if, you, if you've if failed a grade a certain number of times, they'd move you on anyway. Like Pastor Sam used to say, they finally kicked me out of fifth grade for, because I didn't shave. <laughs> in our educational system they'll promote you but but God will not move you to the next level until you're ready which means if you've got to go through this test over and over and over again he'll keep let you go through the test over and over again until you finally decide what well, maybe there's something I need to learn here and so I just try to figure out I don't want to go around this mountain anymore I don't want to go through this valley anymore. If there's something I need to learn, here I am. Teach me. Make And this is what we talked about a little bit on Sunday. But that requires patience so that you stay steady in the middle of the difficulty. I have grown infinitely more in the trials and difficult times in my life than I have when things have been going well. It's just human nature. I wish it were otherwise that I try to learn. I learn some things, but there are some things you only learn by going through them, by having them tested. So, but patience isn't the goal. Verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect. That means complete, mature, complete, lacking nothing. Let's go to verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God. We talked about this last week. The context here is ask wisdom about the trial. What do I need to know? What is it I need to learn? How do I go through this? How do I get through it as quickly as I can, but learn is what I need to learn? And the wisdom about the trial, that wisdom generally does not include why you're going through it or why it happened. That's a distraction. It includes what do I need to know? God, teach me. But notice, and we talked about this time, but He gives to all, we emphasized all last week. If you're an all, He gives wisdom to you. He gives to all liberally. So He's not just meeting out with an eyedropper what He thinks you need. He'll, he'll, he'll I've been overwhelmed lately about the wisdom that God's put in me in situations. Especially in ministry. I just have a confidence that when I go into a difficult situation... I'm going to know in here. I may not know before I go in, but in there, I'm going to know what to do. And I'm just finding this wisdom is just, it's coming out of me as if I have white hair. (laughs) But wisdom comes from God. It's not because I got smart suddenly. It comes from God. But I also ask for it. Who gives to all liberally without reproach. He will not not criticize you or he will not demean you for doing it. But look at verse five, six. Now it changes the context. But let him ask in faith without doubting. And now it's going to broaden it up to not just asking for wisdom. It's not going to talk about asking for anything from God. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Faith is... Faith is not a requirement that God has for answering you. Faith is something that's necessary for you to receive what God has for you. I want to explain that a little bit. Because without understanding this, we turn faith into some kind of works we have to do. And we think, well, I'm in faith, how come I don't have it? Because you don't really understand what faith is. The kingdom of God, the spirit realm, and we've talked about this a number of times, the spirit realm is very real, but you cannot detect it with your five senses. So we can't see God with our eyes unless he does some kind of supernatural manifestation. We can't hear his voice unless he speaks supernaturally to us. We can't experience any of that with our senses. So when God says, I have something for you, we can't see it. It's as if God puts his hands out with whatever you're asking him, and it's in his hands, but you can't see his hands, and you can't see what's in his hands, but that doesn't mean it's not held out to you. But if you could see it with your eyes, and you'd ask for it, you would what what would you do? You'd reach over and take it. So if, if I were to give to, 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 to Richard my glasses case and I would hold it out and if it were something he'd asked for and wanted, it's not complicated. He'd get up and take it out of my hand and say thank you. But if he can't see me and he can't see these glasses because I'm in some other realm of existence, then he's asking me for it but he doesn't know for sure that he can take it because he can't see it. Faith is the substance of things not seen. So what faith does is faith allows you to believe that God is giving you the answer you've asked for because when you can't see it or hear it with your senses, but you can believe it's there in your heart enough to go receive it. So faith is simply a level of believing that God really means it when He says, I'll give you what you ask for enough so that you reach out with your heart and receive it. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not something I've got to get more faith. It's you just have to exercise it. You have to begin to believe it's... Because when you're there, you know you're there, and you don't have to think about what you're doing any more than Richard would have to think about getting up, reaching out, and taking that glasses. I wouldn't say, "Let's see, I got to stand on my feet, check that one off. I got to take two steps forward, check those off. How am I doing? Okay. And now I got to reach out with my hand. Oh, this is a hard part. And then I got to take it out of Pastor John's hand, check that off. Now I can go sit down. And that's what we do with faith. I got to make these confessions. I got to read my Bible. I'm doing all these things, I'm getting in faith, but I don't see any results. Because we're doing doing something with our head, we're going through a series of exercises with our head. Faith is just, you exercise faith when you sat down in that chair. Faith that it would hold you. I didn't see any of you testing it out. Now, you have a lot of reason to have faith, because most of you sat in that same chair for years. Now next Sunday, next next Sunday when you come, or next Wednesday, we're going to move the chairs around so you're going to have a different chair to sit in. So you got to decide whether you can trust us or not. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Alan almost went on the floor. <laughs> so, but here's so what he's saying is this is so simple. He said, if you listen to his heart, if you lack wisdom, ask me. Just come and ask. Do you know how many times God tells us to ask? Dawned on me one time. Two o'clock in the morning, I was up praying about something. And, and sometimes you wonder, how stupid am I? I mean, and how, how simple is it? God said to me one time, he said, Son, why would I tell you to ask if I don't intend to give it? Ah, I never thought of that. Because it goes on to say, God doesn't play games with us. This is in Matthew 7. God doesn't play games with us. He says, if if you a father, if your son asks you for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. If your father, if you ask your father for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a stone. In other words, your fathers doesn't play games. Your fathers in earth doesn't play games with you. They're not tricking you by spinning what you're at. They're straightforward with you, and they're evil compared to me. How much more will your father in heaven give what you ask to you? So God's telling us to come and ask. And here he's coming. Well, I don't know if it's God's will. Well, wisdom's God's will. He says to come and ask him. So he wants us to come and ask him. And this may be why I get, I'm asking for wisdom all the time. I'm expecting wisdom to come. See, because I'm asking in faith. Faith believes, if I've asked it, if God's told me to ask for it, if God says, I give to all liberally, then faith says, if I've asked him, he's given it. That means I have that wisdom now. Now, when I say I have that wisdom, going into a meeting, or I don't feel it. But that's not faith. If I felt it, that wouldn't be faith, that would be feelings. I expect I'm going to have that wisdom. I expect when I walk up here, the wisdom of what to say is going to come. It's not there when I'm sitting down there. But when I get up here and I need it, it's here. But I've learned that over the years. I've watched Him every time come through. So I don't get uptight about it. I just flow into it. But that's because i practiced it for years. But other areas of my life, I'm still growing in this. Just like you are. So, let Him ask in faith... With no doubting. There's the key. Apparently, oh, this is good stuff. Apparently, you can ask in faith and doubt. Because otherwise, he would just say, let him ask in faith. But we have to ask in faith with no doubting. So it must be possible to ask in faith and also doubt. They're not mutually exclusive. I'll give you a very clear example of that. I've talked about this on a number of occasions, but there's a time, and we may get into this later today, we probably won't at this rate, is where Jesus took the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain, Mount of Transfiguration and all that. He comes back down, and the father, there's a commotion, the father comes up to him, and he said, I, he had a son that was demon-possessed. With the demon threw him into the fire. He may well have had what the doctors today would call epilepsy, but Jesus talked about physical symptoms and talked about the spirit that was behind them. And so he says, but your, your, your disciples, the nine of them that stayed at the bottom of the mountain, they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus said, bring him to me. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, well, I guess it wasn't my father's will because they prayed and didn't get an answer. He said, bring him to me. And the father comes to Jesus and says to him, if you can do anything, deliver my son. And Jesus answered, I think it's in Mark's version, he says, if I can, if I can do anything, all things are possible to him who believes. What Jesus was saying, the issue isn't what I can do, the issue is what can you believe. And the father recognized this, and he said, this is so powerful, I believe, help my unbelief. So apparently it's possible to believe and have unbelief. And that's where most of us are. Most of us are, are the same. We believe, but we still have unbelief. We may be in faith, but we have doubting. How can that be possible? Well, the father must have believed, or he wouldn't have brought his son to the disciples. And then when they couldn't do anything, he still now brought him to Jesus. So he believed that Jesus could heal him. But what he was having trouble with was what he was seeing. So he believed that Jesus could heal, but he just saw his disciples fail. So the failure didn't stop him from believing but he also had unbelief because he said I believe help my unbelief when I first heard this this was a revolutionary concept to me but it makes a lot of sense and here's how because you can in fact I've been in times when I have believed something I know I believed it I was in faith because I was at peace and then something well especially with what I just went through I would spend time, especially in the beginning, just saturating myself with the Word of God, watching videos, listening to CDs, reading my Bible, going over verses, doing all saturated, and of course my faith got higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. So I got to the point, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident here. And then I hit a spell where all of a sudden I'm getting shaky. What's going on? Why am I getting shakier? And then I began to realize the Lord began to say, look at your calendar. You've got some tests coming up tomorrow. And in those tests, you're going to go into machines that are going to communicate a message to you that you're sick because you never went in these machines before. You're going to go in things that are going to go around you and make funny noises, and that's going to send a message to your senses that there's cancer in your body. While you're home here, because you don't physically feel anything, while you're saturating yourself with the Word of God, your senses are not communicating anything to you. You following me? But when your senses start talking, when the circumstances get real to your senses, now your unbelief level, when you react to those, your unbelief level starts coming up. Peter on the water is a great example of that. And I don't want to go over it because I preach this so many times. But it, to me, it's the mo- maybe the most powerful story in the New Testament. Peter walked on water in a storm that was going to sink the ship. He walked on water because Jesus said, "Come." Peter had enough faith in Jesus' word to come down. He said he came down out of the ship and walked on the water. Can you imagine what it would take? Now remember, it's a storm. The way, The water's not just like the pond out here. The water's coming up over the bow of the boat. And Peter climbs down out of it with the salt, with the water blowing in his face. His clothes are getting, his robes are getting wet. He climbs down. What would be going... He comes down out of the boat and to step out. Imagine, on what was that first step. Yeah. It's wanting to climb down out of the boat because you're still hanging on the boat. It's still your safety, just as it is for the other 11 that are in it. Peter's going up and down, but at some point, he, oh, we're going to get in this he had to step out. Yeah. At some point, he had to let go of his security and step out on what Jesus said. Because if Jesus said come, that meant he could come. And as I've said many times, actually Peter didn't walk on water, he walked on the word come. Because right. water can't hold you up, but God's word can. God's word can. So Peter's out so Peter's in strong faith. Walking on water in a storm. But it says, he began to notice the wind and the waves. Now listen carefully. The word come spoke to his spirit. Listen carefully. Jesus' word spoke to his heart and his spirit, and he acted on what he heard in his heart and his spirit, on the word that gotten into him. But when he got out there, we don't know how many steps he took, but he took at least one or two. It says he began to notice the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves spoke to him through his senses. And when he began to pay attention to the circumstances through his senses, his unbelief came up to the level of his faith. And it didn't get there right away because it says he began to sink. The first time I ever heard that, it's like, think about that. He began to sink. If I were to step out of a boat, plump, whoa! there's nothing gradual about it. So his unbelief had to catch up with his faith before he sank because he took his inner eyes off of what Jesus said. So you can have faith, but it's not enough to have faith, you have to remove the doubt. And one of the things, because I've worked hard at this through the years, but one of the things that the Lord taught me through what I've just gone through, because I was struggling hard, I was listening to all, all kinds of teachings. I was saturating myself with it, and I was still struggling. And the Lord finally said to me one time Son, faith isn't that hard. It's an act of your will. Oh, I can just decide to trust God. I can decide to not doubt. I can just decide I'm not going to doubt. One of the things that turned my life around years ago was the discovering that love is not an emotion. There is an emotion of love, but the God kind of love is not an emotion. It's an act of your will. It's a decision. Otherwise, God couldn't command you to love. Jesus told his disciples, fear not. He told a number of people, fear not. That means it must be possible to not fear. Now, if we've done it long enough, it's not easy. But... Faith is an act of your will. I'm going to trust you. I don't care what it looks like. I'm going to trust what your word says. So, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea. Interesting. Driven and tossed by the wind. Boy, that fits right in with our example. Go to the next verse, 7. Let not man suppose that he will receive anything. Now he's talking about anything, not just wisdom. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now look at what James says. Look what he does not say. He does not say, a man that's doubting, let not him think God's going to give anything to him. I want you to look at that. Because this is renewing our mind because our religious training is god will do give me or do for me when i've pushed all the right buttons turned all the right dials said all the right things had all the right attitudes and then god will give to me what i need the bible teaches that god's already given it this is one of the powerful revelations of understanding the blood covenant god gave everything to you when he gave christ to you there's nothing more god's holding back from you Romans eight thirty two, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That includes you. How will he not also together with him and the implication in the original language is at the same time give us all things? So God's has God's not holding anything back. Now, obviously, something that's against his will, something that's illegal, you know, something bad for you. Yes, but within the range, and and this word gives us the range of what is God's will. So it's not some big. You know, thing, big confusing thing. It's you know what his will is. You got a sense of it. God's saying, "I've already given it." So, because so, what faith? If we're doubting, faith doesn't stop God. He doesn't look down and you say, "Don, you don't have enough faith." I see some unbelief in there, so I'm going to hold it back until you get enough faith and you get rid of that doubt. I'm going to hold this back. That's not what that says. The problem's on our end, receiving, doubting. Keeps you from receiving, Richard. Since I used you, would you stand up a second? Because I'm going to give that to you, and now you're not sure. And now, and now you're not, see. If you think I'm taking it back, look, 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 he he can't receive it from me. In fact, if he if he starts to, Oops, it dropped it. My glasses aren't in there. See, so it's like if we're not, if we're not confident to receive something. We won't take it. And you do that with your heart, thank you, not with your head. You receive something with your heart. You embrace something. This is another thing I learned through what I just went through. There were certain things that God says, be careful of your heart because you're being tempted to embrace what the doctor said with your heart. It's one thing to understand with my mind, but there's a time when my, your heart went to, well, I have cancer. And then my heart starts embracing that and we're to be careful. Don't let that in your heart. You can think about it in your head, but do not allow your heart. Your heart is when you own, oh, it's mine. It, I, I have the flu again. And you actually can start looking forward to things because it's going to get you out of work for a while. <laughs> the Lord had to deal with me. Because one, the, one, the one therapy I'm still on, which is is which is a, 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 it's a, it's a hormone treatment it can have certain effects on you that they tell you ahead of time, and I was going along for a week or so. I said, I'm feeling pretty good, and then I started thinking about this and wrote, "Well, you know, because of this, I can't do that." And the Lord stopped, stopped me. He said, "You know what? You're starting to use that as an excuse. Be careful, because your heart will embrace that, and if your heart embraces it, it's now you've now taken it into you. So it's what our heart embraces, receives." It embraces the best way I can describe it. it. It takes it in and says, yes, I want this. I've taught my sons, our younger sons, because I didn't know it with my older one, but he was good at this. I said, when you start getting attracted to a young lady when you're single, I said, there's a point where you choose to give your heart to them. Before you do that, This is good wisdom to teach your kids. Before you do that, make sure that's the person God has for you. Because once your heart is given to them, your brain goes out the window. But what that taught me is I can choose and I can go back and remember the point 51 years ago when I did that with her. I can remember right where I was. And I wasn't sitting there, but I remember that's what happened. And that's when I quote-unquote fell in love with her. I didn't fall in anything. I opened my heart and let her in. And it was an act of my will. It wasn't something I had rationally thought out, because I was not say that. I didn't know what I know now. We were kids. But I know that happened. I can tell you right where we were, What would I remember what she was wearing. I better got go there, because I'll lose my train of thought. I'm starting to sweat already. (laughs) I'm probably starting to blush. (laughs) What were we talking about before somebody interrupted us? (laughs) James. What did James say here? Let's see. Oh, temptation. That's what we're going to get into. (laughs) Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. See, I was single minded, I did receive something. Look at this. Let him not receive. So it's received anything from the Lord. So we're not talking about anything. Verse 8, and here's why. Being a double-minded man. To be double-minded literally means to be of two minds. It's diaklean in the Greek. It means two minds. One moment you have a mind of one thing, you're thinking one thing. The next thing you begin to think something else. God loves me. He doesn't love me today. I can trust God, and now I can't trust God. But we rarely just sit there and say, "I can trust God." And then 20 minutes later, I can't trust God. What it is is like Peter, I can trust you, Jesus, enough to step out on the boat. and now when circumstances start coming, now I become double-minded about what my, about him and what he's going to do for me or what he's promised me. Uh, the circus, See, the devil's trying to get your mind off of being single-minded. And we'll see later on in James, he talks about to become going back into being single-minded towards your pursuit of the Lord, being single-minded. So, But he does it through circumstances. And we're going to see in a few minutes, some of the, well, when I get there tonight, we're going to see some of the things that he does to help to make us double-minded. But the reason we can't receive from the Lord is because we become unstable. And I've used this before. It's kind of like, you know, uh, 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 whatever it may be. You know, God's promised to heal me. Jesus, by His stripes, I've been healed. So I'm standing on this. I'm standing. By His stripes, I've been healed. Oh! That pain's still there. Well, I'm not sure it's going to work this time. So I go on this foot. Well, but I go back into the Word. But God's words can be true. I can trust Him. And then somebody tells me somebody had the same symptoms and they died. And they go back over here. And what it is, We go back and forth. And when you, somebody's going back and forth, they can easily be knocked over. Whoops! I almost fell over because they're not stable. And what has God said? We just talked about earlier. Having done all to stand, stand. But when we're going back and forth, we can be knocked over. We can be we can be pushed out because when I'm standing, my feet are under my shoulders. So my 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 my, my the the but my base is is wider. But if I'm going this side, my whole body is out of balance because it's all on one foot. I know it's a physical example, but to be double-minded is exactly that. It makes us unstable, but notice that in all our ways. Not just in this issue. It makes you unstable in your trusting in God. Verse 9. We're whoa, whoa, moving along here. Whoops, I got ahead of me. Okay. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, here's the lesson to learn from that. In order to receive what God's already provided for us, and see, it helps our faith to know God's already provided for us. I don't have to talk him into it. It's not how long I pray. It's not how well I pray. I've told you before, some of my most effective prayers is H-E-L-P, help. Coming right out of my heart. So it's, it's what comes out of your heart towards God, but it's by based on faith and confidence in, what he, in who he is. What I'm discovering is my relationship with him is becoming more real and deeper that my confidence in my prayers are becoming because I'm, I'm asking somebody I know. See, most of us say prayers, and this is what I've done for years. Said prayers. Well, I should be praying for these people today, so let's go. In fact, I have a checklist of people to pray for, situations to pray for, so I'd go down and say, pray for this person. Oh, I forgot this person today. I've got to pray for this person. It's like I'm going through a checklist. And, and that's okay because there may be situations you need to be reminded of. So I'm not saying don't have something like that. But while I'm doing that, what if I... It's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like what happens in so many marriages. You sit at the breakfast table and you have conversation at each other. Pass the curse pass the syrup, do this, back and forth, you know, are the kids doing this, how the kids do. But there's no real person to person communication. So when we're praying, a lot unless we're developing this relationship with him, what's happening is we're throwing prayers up at him and in many cases we're hoping something sticks. So we just take whatever we can think of, whatever scriptures we've learned, just something eventually will stick. Maybe you can catch something here. If I throw the right thing up, it's gonna work. But the real way to find out, and I really don't want to get off too much on prayer, I'm still sweating, is um, is when you pray, do you expect to get an answer? I mean, do you really? Can you look for the answer? You need. To, I'm not asking to answer me, because we'll all say yes. But ask your heart, am I really, when I'm praying, am I confident God's hearing me and answering me? But see, if you have a relationship with him, then you know who you're talking to and you know something you know what he's like so you have confidence that he's heard you not just because first John 1 John 5:14 uh, says so but because you know him and he's heard you and so when we don't have that we become double-minded and stable in all our ways. let's move down to the next subject. we're going to go down to verse 10 Blessed is he that is the man that endures temptation. Now he's going to talk about this from a different side. We've talked about testing that God allows or brings into your life to develop and prove what's in you. But the other side of this is temptation or test that the devil brings into your life and his purpose is to destroy you or distract you. And you need to learn to discern the difference. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. This is still test. For when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. That's the word God, the one God brings in. Which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot tempt by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. For each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lusts, desires, and enticed. And that when desire is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. I think it's worth going through this. I was going to go into something else. So, verse 12 is telling us, Blessed is the man who endures the temptation. The word endures implies not that you held on, that you went through it and got out of it. So, again, it's the same thing. The patience works in you. It doesn't, patience itself doesn't do it, but patience keeps you steady so that God can work in you and show you and do in you what he wants you to learn through that experience. So, blessed is the man who endures this. Because when he's been approved, when he's passed the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I believe the context of this is not just a particular trial or test like an ingrown toenail or something like that, but it's the persecution they were going through. Because the crown of life he's talking about is the reward at the end. When we're in heaven what's one of the crowns that the Bible talks about. You get it. It's the crown of life. So this is talking about going through your whole life of dealing with all the difficulties and not being moved away from it. Not being moved away from your faith in Christ. Not being moved away from your walk with Him. Not being moved away from what God has for you to do. And there is a reward at the end when you've been approved, when you've passed the test. Which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Okay. Verse 13, now he's going to draw this distinction. But let no one say when he's tempted that I'm tempted by God. This is the difference. This is temptation, not a test. Although a temptation can be a test, a temptation comes from the devil to test you. But the devil's not trying to test you to prove what you can do, the devil's trying to test you to get you to fail, to fall, to be distracted. And he's real, and he really does this. So let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. The implication is with evil. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Uh, We won't be able to finish this, but this is important. Satan, once you're a Christian... Satan cannot make you do anything. Flip Wilson was wrong. The devil can't make you do it. That's a great excuse. And that was the humor in that. He was using it as an excuse for what he already wanted to do. If you don't know what that is, look it up on YouTube. You'll find out. The devil made me do it. What the devil does is he knows what your desires are. Not your lust. He knows where your weaknesses are because he's helped you develop them. He knows where you're insecure. We're not just talking about a desire for chocolate. We're talking about inner things too. Those are obvious. We're talking about insecurities. And so if you are insecure, the devil knows that and what he will try to do is bring temptations to you for you to satisfy that insecurity by your own efforts. That's what he tried to do with Eve. God's trying to keep something from you, so take it into your own hands. Eve wasn't insecure, she was just deceived because she didn't understand what Satan was trying to do. So what he's saying here is when we're tempted by the devil, we're drawn away by our own desires. Satan can't give you desires that you don't already have. But what he can do is fan them. What he can do is parade in front of your senses. He can only, that's another thing. He only has access to you through your five senses. So when your body's dead, there's nobody in the morgue, in any city today, there's nobody in that that morgue that can be tempted. Romans 6 says that. Because they're dead. And we're supposed to be dead to this world. And so Satan's only access to you is to show you through one of your senses something you already have a desire for. And this is important to understand so that you know where your weaknesses are. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about the devil, but be aware of your weaknesses. And God will help you. Some, some of the trials that you go through are to expose your weaknesses to you. And if you keep having to go through the trial, you're not getting it. Which So wait a minute, why did I stumble this time? See, that's one of the things I learned a long time ago is to ask myself questions. Why am I reacting that way? Why am I having this kind of feeling? Because it doesn't line up with the word. Why do I feel jealous in this situation? Something's wrong in me. What is it? Show me what it is. What's behind that? And I ask those questions and God will begin to show me, What that is, but if I just assume I'm jealous because they're wrong, then I'm not ever going to learn because it's always somebody else. And it may be them, but it's my reaction to them that tells me. See, you know, we faith people have learned to deny our emotions, but your emotions are given to you as symptom indicators. Just like your body, when you have a temperature, they don't treat the temperature if you've got a fever, they don't treat the fever. Because the fever is a sign something else is wrong. There's some kind of war going inside your body between your white, corpus- your white corpuscles and some kind of foreign bacteria or virus in there and it's causing the friction that's heating your body up. So they don't just, that's why they don't want you to take all this, you know, things that drop your temperature down. They want to find out why you have the temperature. Well, if I've got these emotions of being angry or jealous or or, or or lustful somewhere there's a need underneath that that in my personality that I'm not letting God fulfill. We'll see that when we get to chapter 4 because he calls us when we're doing that adulterers. Spiritual adultery is the same thing as physical adultery would be. Physical adultery is when I try a male man tries to get his physical needs, you know what that is, met from somebody other than the one covenant person, the person he's in covenant with. That's adultery. Spiritual adultery is when I try to get my inner needs met from something or someone else other than the God I'm in covenant with who wants to to satisfy that need. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 4, if we ever get there. (laughs) We will. So, where am I on? Okay. It's being drawn away He's drawn away by his own desires and then enticed. So Satan identifies your desires and through your senses, something you see, you hear, you feel, you taste, smell, he begins to excite that desire. And then if you will let that go, he'll be, that it will begin to entice you. The word entice implies draw you away to something else. It's kind of the word that's used in, in Proverbs when a, when a prostitute entices the young man. He warns a man not to be enticed. He warns him not to go in certain places because your senses will get excited and you'll be enticed. The enticing is a a drawing away. Well, we're going to have to end here. No, I'll go on to one more because we've got another minute. And when is verse 15? And when the desire has conceived, there's a progression here. There's a progression here. It starts with my desire. Now, some of your desires you can't help, but when you recognize it, you've got to get control over it. That's why Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 9, chapter verse 27, he says, I keep my body under, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. That word literally is, is mean to fail the test. It's the same word of testing. So Paul says, I've got to keep my body under i got to keep dominion over my body because I'm human, I've got desires and it's not just sexual desires, it's any kind of desires where my body has control of me because he understood what happens is then that desire is there, There, Satan fans the desire now we can be enticed or drawn away by our own desire because we no, now don't have control and that desire, if this happens long enough, begins to conceive and give birth to something and that's sin so you don't just wake up one day and commit a sin it had its roots a long time ago. By desires and then thoughts about that that you didn't control. And the thinking begins to paint a picture in your mind. An imagination begins to form. And you begin to, the imagination will begin, begin to give you, you will have the opportunity. And then it will give birth in your life to sin. And look at this. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So what helps? As you realize at the beginning of this progression is the easiest time to stop it. The more you let it go, when you get to the point where the sin is birthed and it's growing, when it gets full grown, the next step is into death And it's a hard step to turn. If you haven't turned it around by then, each step along is harder to turn it around and longer to go back. So this is what renewing the mind towards. If you can catch it at the beginning, there are things that will come on television I'll turn my eyes away from. There are things I'll hear, I'll turn it off. Their thoughts, I get. I used to get them. I had a battle with certain kind of thoughts when I was a lawyer, and I would walk through, and I just say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They May thought I didn't care who saw me. I wanted to get the name of Jesus help me get control over those thoughts. I didn't want to go down that path with my thought life, so I stepped. If I'd have said all day Jesus, 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 and if I couldn't do that, I started picturing him on the cross. Anything to exercise control over my thoughts. Now it's much easier because I don't let it go very far. It's much easier to stop it. And if it starts, it's much easier to uproot it when they're just little seedlings in your heart and in your mind. But if you begin to let it continue to grow, this is where it heads. You have God's Word on it. And some of you are already down that path in some areas. And God's going to help us this year because there's some things that God's beginning to bring across our path where we can help you. We can't do it for you, but we can help you turn it around. Because these are things we don't like to talk about, but this is why James is very practical and is talking about it. So God will bring us through tests to develop, help us to learn opportunities to develop our faith. The devil brings temptations to us to destroy us, and he's going to. he knows what's in you, because he's helped put it in you, and he wants to use those weaknesses. So as you become aware of those weaknesses, you're better off strengthening yourself in those weaknesses. How do I do it? The Word of God. Meditate on the Word. Confess the Word over yourself. Begin to help. ask the Spirit of God who's in you to help you to discipline yourself, because Romans, oh boy, Romans 8 talks about, if by the Spirit I put together the deeds of the flesh, I'll live. You can't do it in your own flesh. You can't do it in your own strength. You've got to call on the Spirit of God. Admit to Him, I'm having trouble in this area. Help me. Bring help across my path because I don't want to go down this path. And He is in you to enable you to overcome that. And I've asked Him to help me to overcome my temptation to preach to (laughs) one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the things that you're teaching us. We thank you for the things that you're helping us with. We thank you, Lord, that wherever we are and whatever we're going through right now, that not only do you know that, but you're there with us and in this and you love us. You put your spirit in us to help us, Lord. So open our eyes to see where we are. See and be honest with ourselves and with you about what we're struggling with. And then, Father, we cry out to you for help and we strengthen us and enable us to begin to overcome these things. But most of all, help us to understand that you're merciful, You're gracious. Your word says that because we have a a faithful high priest, we can come with openness and boldness to a throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need. You're in us showing us these things because you want to help us and save us and deliver us from what we've gotten into. And we thank you so much for that mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen.